Hello, and welcome to Faith Facts with Father Howard. I'm Lindsay, here with Father Howard, and on today's episode we are discussing the second part of the Christmas season. So let's get started. It's good to see again to be with you, with Lindsay, and opportunity to just to reflect a little bit. Uh, we were talking the last, I believe, the last uh, broadcast would have been with the uh, first part of, of uh, mm-hmm. the Christmas season, and a lot of times it, it's just only focused on one day, the twenty fifth, and and we forget that the Christmas season is a season, and it's it's uh, second only to Easter. In, in how it is set up, how it is viewed by the church, how it is uh, arranged as far as the the days, the feasts, um, the octaves, all of that is really, uh, it's quite significant. And, and because of all of that, it, it recognize, we recognize that the importance that the church places on this. And, and, and we can forget that, as, as I, th- I believe I mentioned before, is that it, it can be so lost in the the commercialism and in in all of that and and what is forgotten is is the beauty of of this of this whole season uh when when you look at it in regard to the aspects uh of of what it again what what in our faith it celebrates and how it celebrates all of that as just a, a little bit of a, a recap because i think it's important that we 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 again look at it in in the big picture that originally this was uh, all placed around the uh, the the feast of the uh, of the Roman feast because there were a lot of uh, pagan holidays that were um, that were put in place here, and in order to counteract those pagan holidays, particularly the feast of of Janus, which is the god that has two faces. It was on January first, uh, the face that looks to the past, but the face that also looks to the future. And this, this feast day of Janus uh, was, let's just say, it was uh, get down, get dirty, uh, party time. Uh-huh. So this was the 31st probably, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, where we have our moments of revelry, of course, but um, they spent days at it and they had it perfected pretty well. Uh, <clears throat> so we you know, when you when you put it in the context of all of this, is that many of these feasts were uh, the church's feasts as we we took them, we kind of took them over, and uh, so you had you know, not only Christmas, but uh, which was you know a celebration of the God, the birth of the God of the Son, S U N, and and we made it into Christmas, the birth of the Son of God. Uh, you had the first where we. We what we did first originally in our history was that we made the first of January a penitential time uh, to be modeled after Lent, and so we had talked about the last time, you know, the solemnity of Mary, the Mother of God. That was really secondary in some ways, and it was a very penitential season. In fact, it was in the the Fourth Council of Toledo. This was around the year of six thirty three that they really emphasized the penitential piece of it. And eventually it became then a feast that was was more dedicated to Mary, uh, Mary the Mother of God. And that, you might say, was another tactic that the church used in order to, you might say, demand of the Christian people, the, the people yeah, who follow Jesus, 
to demand of them that you had to stay away from these these terrible, terrible pagan feasts, uh, and and you had to celebrate something else, which is interesting because we just made it our own feast time. <laughs> our own and celebration. Yeah, our celebration. We just partied in a different way, I guess. Um, well, maybe they figured they're already partying. Let's just let's just put our own spin on it. So so they think about the faith instead. We could look at it that way. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I tend to be much more basic than that. Um, and But anyway, re- regardless of all of that, um, the in the 13th and 14th centuries, the focus was not even on Mary after a point. The focus was on the circumcision of Jesus. And so uh, before 69, you would not remember this time, nope. but before 69, you know, 1969, not year 69, <laughs> 1969, um, <clears throat> It was called, you know, the circumcision of the Lord, and it was the octave of Christmas, and so, uh, you know, it, so it was, it was that focusing. Well, after the 1969, then, uh, with the general norms uh, from the Second Vatican Council, is that it went back to being a solemnity of Mary, the Mother of God on January 1st. So these feasts have been moving around for centuries, you know, and, and, and we're even doing that today, you know, moving things around, depending upon theologies, depending upon the circumstances of, of, of culture, depending upon, you know, uh, sometimes the politics of church. Uh, somehow in the midst of it all is the point being is celebrating the significance of the Christmas event, the Incarnation. Um, and even today, even today, there are those who will argue, and this is just a little bit yet on the on the first of January, that there are those who will argue that it is regrettable that we have lost the civic aspect of of January first, being the start of the uh, of the year. That as a church, we've usually recognized those events. And in fact, in the Roman Missal, you have a mass that can be used for the beginning of the year, but it can't be used on January 1st because that's a solemnity. <laughs> and you can't use that mass on a solemnity. You have to use the readings that, that are there. Could you use it after 4 o'clock? Uh, probably, yes, you probably could because <laughs> that of the timing and such. Yes, you probably could. But but that's the, you know, that's... Sometimes the, the, the discussions that are still taking place, you know, with, within our world of, of what is appropriate and how do we celebrate these events well. So what would the, what's the other mass for the beginning of the year focus on? It just the other mass, the one for the civil or the civil year or the civic year, is it focuses on beginnings. Okay. It focuses on starting something new. It focuses on a blessing of, sure. of of the beginning of a year. And it was it was interesting how Pope Paul the Sixth, uh, in his discuss when they were discussing all of this in the Second Council, he made the comments. This was before now he was uh, he was Pope. He made the comment that liturgy was instituted for human beings, not human beings for liturgy. And, and, but in, because he was voicing some of that regret, saying, we've lost something here. And we have lost an opportunity here as a church to bring a focus 
when when maybe we could um, we could have celebrated the feast of the solemnity of Mary on another time, another day, you know, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So who knows what will happen, what may happen in the future. Uh, so that's all part of that that first piece, you might say, of the... Um, like the first week of the, Christmas. The first weeks of Christmas. Uh, and, and then we talked a bit about, <clears throat> not only that, we talked a bit about Holy Family and all of that, but after the solemnity then <clears throat> comes the... Uh, the Solemnity of the Epiphany. And this uh, is celebrated, you know, depending upon where Christmas falls. If it falls on a Sunday, then the octave is on a Sunday. So that means then the Epiphany is, is like celebrated that next week after. Um, and then what you have, though, is the Epiphany is really the celebration of a manifestation of God. Now, curiously enough, the Epiphany was just not about, you know, the Magi. (laughs) Originally, the Epiphany included and was celebrated the the baptism of Jesus and it celebrated the wedding feast at Cana. Hmm. These were all celebrated together under the title of Epiphany because all three of these were seen as manifestations of God. An Epiphany is simply a manifestation of God. (laughs) Yeah, it has me thinking like, wait, I just always associated that with three wise men. So that's what that means, right? But yeah, okay, no, there's actually a word. Yeah, we, we let... We let... Myth and story and whatever else get in the way mm-hmm. of celebrating the major concept, the idea that the church is trying to is trying to wrap its head around, you might say, is trying to help people to to understand and become aware of. You know, it's it's interesting how they didn't include, for example, the transfiguration under that. That's an epiphany. Uh, you could have put so many things, but the key things that were really seen as that were, or I should say, seen as connected with the Epiphany uh, was both the uh, the baptism and then the wedding feast at Cana. The baptism of the Lord eventually, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. The baptism of the Lord got its own Sunday, you might say, mm-hmm. and the wedding feast, you know, is simply part of the normal cycle. Of of uh, of Sunday readings, did the wedding feast happen after the baptism in the Bible? I don't in the, know yes, my chrono, chrono, <laughs> the order. Yes, biblically it did. Biblically, thank you. <laughs> yes, biblically. Can't think of the word. Did. Okay. Um. So, so, but it would make sense that those are together because they probably, in the order of the stories, it happened pretty close to after the wedding <laughs> feast being the first miracle. So yes, yeah. Hmm. It, it, you would just, think it would get its own, its own time, and who knows? That's a big one. Who knows? Maybe someday it will. <laughs> and and there's a whole theory that I have that it may someday, you know, as we wrestle as a culture, as we wrestle with issues of what is a family, marriage, mm-hmm. all of those things that are being wrestled with not only in church but in civil circles, political circles. Uh, societal circles. Who knows? It might. Because when you think of these, many of these feasts, any number of them, what were they? 
they were responses to what was oftentimes happening in the culture. They were responses to somehow for the church to be able to express a truth or a belief. And so what we did in any number of, of circumstances here is that we created um, or it, it, it sometimes just organically developed a, a special day or feast or, or celebration of something in order to emphasize a truth that, that is terribly important to the church and, and we would say in, to the faith itself. So it's, um, so you never know. You just never know. Would take a lot of years, probably. Probably it would be well before <laughs> we ever, you know, would ever see it. But yes, it, it. But these things do. When you think about some of these things, take you know a, a hundred years, which is a very short time, and some take five or six hundred years, which is a little bit longer time. But when you think of the history of the church being over two thousand years old, that's not such a long time, you know, in when you keep it in perspective. And many times it's, it's the length of time it takes for, at times, a truth or, you know, a, 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 an idea somehow to form and to shape itself and to be long-lasting for it to somehow come to fruition. So you never know what, what might happen, you know, in time. When it, when it comes, you know, to the solemnity, though back to the, the solemnity of the Epiphany, Originally, in the Eastern Church, it was, it was the Feast of Christ's birth, okay? Uh, Christmas in the Eastern Church is celebrated, you know, was celebrated on Epiphany. That's when you had the, the gifts, the presents, because the Magi brought the gifts. That's when they did all of that. In the Western Church, that was in December. And so there was a split for a while. But the oldest tradition, though, that we have of of the Epiphany would be around in the third century, so sometime in the 200s, and that was in Alexandria in Egypt. It was Clement who wrote uh, around in the 200s that spoke of this of this feast or this celebration to be uh, to be had by the people of, of, of faith. It is most likely, again, as history shows, it is most likely or probable that it was introduced to the church to combat the heresy of Gnosticism. The Gnostics were people, Gnosis, Greek word for uh, knowledge, uh, knowing something. It, it was a, a heresy that said only certain people who had a, basically had a specific knowledge could somehow enter the kingdom. And how did they know that? You just asked them because they were the people with this particular knowledge. And it was one of the things that, that the Gospel of John combated. You know, it was the, it was the whole issue of Gnosticism. Uh, that it wasn't just for the special ones. It wasn't just for especially, it was for everybody. And when you look at the Feast of the Epiphany, it's not really about Magi or whoever <laughs> showed up on the doorstep. It's about the fact that, that you know, God w was the source of salvation for all people. No exceptions, no conditions. Y you know, it, it wasn't by accident that they would have had leadership from the East 
you know, where where those were pagan people. Those were God-awful, terrible people. Those were people that didn't know God, uh, that they would be the ones coming to adore the Lord when all of the people who should have known missed it entirely. So th- this this was not simply about, you know, three wise men, king, who, kings, whoever they were. Um, and, you know, this was about, you know, the God of salvation. This was about redemption. And so you have, you know, all this, this whole thing development, developing, I should say, you know, particularly, you know, very possibly, I should say, to combat uh, the Gnostic traditions and the Gnostic feasts. Um, so similar to the Western Church, uh, the church centered in Rome as opposed to Northern Africa, is that you have dates set to combat various pagan uh, non-Christian feasts. In the second half of the 4th century, um, that's when the East and the West, you might say, started working together a little bit more and, and, and basically took over each other's feasts and placed them in their calendars. So now you had Christmas, Epiphany, the baptism of the Lord. All of those were placed in each other's calendars uh, because of the significance that was rising out of, uh, out, out of these feasts and because of, of the popularity in many ways, too. Uh, that these feasts were becoming to people in order to to celebrate key key elements uh, of their faith. Now, another thing that we can't forget is that by this time, you know, it's when the you know the Roman Empire becomes the Holy Roman Empire, and now you have the uh, the theological body, you might say, not only becoming a theological you know uh, leadership, but also political and civil leadership. <clears throat> is that now you have some of these feasts to be set in order to give people a day off. I mean, it's sometimes it's very, that basic. <laughs> sometimes is that, people just need it. Exactly. And this was one way, you know, there were no such day, things as hot weekends or, you know, all of that that we know today and, and oftentimes take for granted, is that these were also days that were uh, days of prayer, fasting, celebration. They were a day when there was no work done. They were like a Sunday, you know, where where you honored the Lord's day. And these were days then that where people, you know, could, could have off with their family. So sometimes we miss, uh, we miss uh, pieces of that. So now you, you have the movement where the Epiphany, but and it's still at this time, this wasn't quite where it was separated out yet, where the Epiphany and, and, and all of those days uh, became part of the Western Church also. So when you think about, you know, Christmas, because there were different theologies that approached these, Christmas stressed the humanity of Jesus, the incarnation of God becoming human, fully human, fully divine. He became one of us. The epiphany stressed the Lord's divinity. So now, now you have two different different approaches and two different things in the sense you were celebrating. Um, it was clear by the epiphany, and, and sometimes we forget what we take for granted, but when the epiphany you know, became a solemnity and became that important, it was clear that Jesus, as they would say, is now the messianic king of the entire world. There is no question. 
over the entire world. Not just certain parts of the world, not just certain people, not just certain ones who were baptized, over the entire world. No exceptions, no conditions. And um, so, and, and it's by him being the Messianic king uh, and whose intervention was, whose intention, I say, not intervention, <laughs> whose intention was to lead all peoples to salvation, even the pagans. I mean, that, that makes sense. Yeah, that it does to us. Yeah. It does not, it did not, I should say, to many in that part of the world and during that time. Sure. It was still, we are in, and, and when you think about it also, it was not that long ago that many folks who were Catholic believed that only Catholics were in the kingdom. Lutherans hmm. and Presbyterians and all of those folks were not going to enter the kingdom until they, unless they became Catholic. Now, so we have a ways to go yet in sure. some, some things, you know, when you think about it. And there are still people today who believe that there are certain people who will not enter the kingdom. And, and you know, and, and, and I don't believe that. I believe, again, when you think about what the feast celebrates, he was... The salvation of all people, no, no exceptions. We still don't, there are still many people in the world that don't believe that. And mm. so it's important when you think about what we celebrate, it's important that we continue to celebrate that. To remind folks, Jesus is, intends the salvation of all. And how that happens is ultimately in the hands of God, not our hands. It's ultimately in the hands of God. And we must leave it there. Because when a little, you know, diversion here, if, if we take on the task or the, you might say, the, the role of determining who is or who is not saved, that's when we get into trouble and we end up playing the role of God. And the epiphany says, no, 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 no. That's not our position. We are to bring those who are disciples, are to bring indeed the good news to the world. Absolutely. But ultimately, how all of that works is ultimately in the hands of God. And it's good for us to remember that we have to leave it there. Yeah, well, it makes sense that Christmas is the human part and then epiphany would be the divine part. Like, it makes sense to have two separate days like that. Yeah. But you just kind of lose that in what we have today. Exactly. And what the Christmas season does, it it kind of wraps it into this this package and says a this... Christmas present wraps it into a Christmas present. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, sure, sure. <laughs> it wraps it into this entity. <laughs> okay. That says what we celebrate on Christmas is not somehow a moment in history, is not somehow simply a nice, wonderful thing or reason for us to pull out figurines, you know, every once a year and give each other presents, is that this is for the entire world for all time. And it's important that we don't lose that. Mm -hmm. So when we're... Uh, 
so it, it expresses in so many ways. It expresses what one might call the universality of God's salvation. That's what we need to remember. <laughs> you know, that's what we need to remember. No matter who, no matter where, no matter what religion they might profess or embrace, known or unknown, is that ultimately um, it is the universality of God's salvation for all. And to, as I mentioned, to leave that in God's hands. Uh, otherwise, we lose a sense of, of what we celebrate and why we celebrate it. And we lose a sense of our role in it that we also needed to be saved. So at what point did they pull out the baptism of the Lord and give it its own, its that, own day? That comes about a century or so later. Okay. So that's more around the 4th and 5th centuries um, where... Again, for theological reasons, they start to pull these apart because of the significance and the development of the theologies that 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 kind of surrounded these these feasts. You, you know, the theology that's that surrounded the the birth of the Savior. Sometimes these theologies and philosophies they developed in the East or the West Church, and then they they simply embraced each other because. As I mentioned, the significance because of the popularity, because how many of these celebrations began to be embraced, maybe first in Northern Africa, but eventually got to Europe, oftentimes through the religious orders, that, that these, that these um, feasts, that these liturgical rites and such started to become very, very popular, uh, sometimes within the Irish, sometimes within the Germans, sometimes if the French, and oftentimes it didn't start in Rome, which is an interesting fact. They started in other places and eventually moved to Rome, uh, and eventually the, the Roman, Rome being the seat of power both politically and civilly, eventually uh, that, that seat of power embracing them and making it universal for the whole Roman Church, uh, being that it was oftentimes universal for the whole Eastern Church, um, sometimes well before, and vice versa, that happened also. <clears throat> but when you when you look at the whole Feast of the Epiphany, um, and 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 all of those things that surround it, it's it's uh, again in the big picture, it's a feast of redemption. Just from another viewpoint, that's all. It's a feast of redemption. And it's a feast about God and how God ultimately brings all together. And, and, and that's, that's the thing we must, not, we must not forget. The baptism of Jesus um, really starts to look now, again, starts to take, take some of these things apart. So now, over time, you really lost the wedding feast of Cana. That mm -hmm. really got lost. However, the baptism of Jesus remained. That was still, you know, very much connected. Um, so, it, so it's key to the, theo key to the theology of salvation. Uh, again, when you look at the, a big picture, remember it's, at, it's the universality of God's salvation. But key to the theology of salvation was one, the divine sonship of Jesus. Um, that's, you know, uh, that, that is central. And so the baptism of the Lord starts to take on a significance because it expresses or it embraces these key key pieces. You have the divine sonship of Jesus. 
Okay, this is my beloved son. Okay, uh, that's in Matthew. You have the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus. Okay, now you start. You have Father, Son, with Father, Spirit, now and Son in there also. And Jesus, you know, you might say prefers solidarity, or I should say not prefers, professes solidarity with the human race by being baptized. So in the in the feast of the baptism, now you have, uh, you know, a theology that that focuses. In three different ways, it focuses on, you know, you might say Jesus's entirety, you know, Trinity. Wow. Um, in, There's so much more person. to it than you just think, oh, he's <laughs> baptized. There you go. But Yeah, it, there really is. You know, again, we, we focus on a, a human act, and that that's happens, you know, over time and such. And what can be lost is the entire theology that what that was being expressed and would have been grasped in many ways by the people of that time. Um, over time, commercialism, and sometimes we're just plain lazy, <laughs> lack of knowledge. Uh, we can forget that that these really are our key pieces, and they were so central that they literally gave the baptism of the Lord it, its own Sunday. Hmm. So. Um, <clears throat> With baptism of the Lord, um, when you look at it, is also mentioned, uh, or the concepts are mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 10, which refers to the the messianic uh, uh, mission, the messianic anointing, and 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 the the point that Jesus was to go out to all people. Um, in the Old Testament, they would refer to this again. You're looking at at theologians, at a church that is saying, we believe we find this within the sacred scriptures, this whole piece. We find it in the sacred scriptures. So in the Old Testament, you find it, particularly in the first servant song in Isaiah, in chapter 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, whom I have chosen, and then it goes on from there. That, that what is said at the baptism of the echoes, what is said Mm-hmm. In the um, in the first servant song, again, that would not have been lost on the people of that time. They would have been familiar with the Old Testament, certainly, and the servant songs, which were considered to be, you know, key parts of the, of the Old Testament. It would not have been lost on them to almost have a uh, almost a, a repeating of that line, said by none other than God Himself. Behold, you know. This is the one that I have chosen. This is my son. Listen to him. Um, you know, that type of thing. So with this then, it now brings the whole cycle of, of Christmas, which when you think begins, you know, the first Sunday of Advent, anticipation, waiting, longing, hoping, not only reflecting on the past, but going into the future, celebrating Christmas, the finally what they had been longing for and waiting for has finally happened. You move toward the octave of the solemnity of Mary, the mother of God, the octave being that, you know, that, that somehow all of this takes place uh, through people just like us, 
you know, uh, through the grace and the power of God, uh, that you have, you know, that, that God has, the divine has become now fully human. And then you go to, you know, the holy family of what happens in this, in this family unit. And we could talk for days just on <laughs> that piece alone. And again, in light of our own experiences of family and what that means, you look at then, you know, the uh, epiphany, which focuses then more on the divinity, the universality of it all. And then that moves now to the baptism of the Lord, which brings this whole season now to an end and said, we celebrate in this person of Jesus. He is God's son. How do we know? God said so. <laughs> he is fully human. He chooses to, to embrace, to profess humanity, to, to recognize the goodness in humanity by identifying with us through baptism. And he has the spirit that comes upon him, you know, to basically to seal it, to seal it all. And, 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 and to speak to us of, of what is able to be accomplished through that. Now, one small detail, <laughs> I should say, uh -oh. with all of this. Um, I should say first that the Feast of Baptism brings to close uh, the, um, the Christmas season. The Monday after baptism, it begins now the first section of Ordinary Time, which we'll talk about at a later time. But there are two Christmas feasts, really Christmas feasts, that are celebrated outside the cycle of Christmas. And initially, they often focused on Mary. One was called, before 1969, again, one was called the Purification of the Blessed Virgin Mary. We now call that the Presentation of the Lord in order to focus where it needs to be focused. And there was also the, the whole argument when they talk about the purification of the Blessed Virgin Mary. She was born without sin. You don't get much more pure than that. <laughs> there was True. no need for a purification of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Mm -hmm. So it's called the Presentation of the Lord, celebrated on February 2nd, which we often refer to as Candlemas Day. It's oftentimes the time when we bless the candles. Now, originally, you blessed all the candles that were to be used in the church hmm. for the coming year. Okay. And basically, the only one that wasn't blessed would have been the Easter candle because that has its own blessing time Sure. at the vigil. And you probably didn't have it yet. You probably <laughs> didn't. <laughs> But they would have if they yes, had blessed yes, it, yes. you know. Um, and the second one was called the Annunciation of the Blessed Virgin Mary. That is now called, was renamed, the Annunciation of the Lord. That is celebrated March 25th, exactly nine months before Christmas. Um, the presentation was celebrated 40 days after Christmas. Mm. Hmm. Where do we find that theme? You know, um, and that was already developed sometime within the fifth century. So these are feasts that really are connected to the Christmas season. So um, you could claim either that the Christmas season ends on February 2nd and starts on March what 25th. 
I mean, yeah. I suppose. Or it ends March 25th. But that wouldn't make as much sense. You know, if you're anticipating a birth for nine months, Christmas season starts March 25th, which everyone who likes the Christmas season should like that. I I guess so. (laughs) I think the church in its wisdom decided not to do that. um, (laughs) Right, because it's usually Lent. Exactly. Well, you're exactly right. Is that, and it's always that question of what do we do with, you know, February 2nd is always before the Latin season. But what do we do with that March 25th date? And that's a question. Mm-hmm. How do we celebrate that? Because we are in the midst of the Lenten season. Right. And in fact, we could be either in Holy Week or we could be in uh, the, um, we could be, let's see, yeah, it would be the Holy Week, I think is the earliest that we could do. Anyway, the Annunciation is, as I mentioned, nine months before mm-hmm. Christmas. It's when you start to and look at the whole picture of this, you you begin to to see how really these things w- were knitted together in order to help people to be reminded of these things literally throughout the year, to be able to celebrate these momentous opportunities <coughs> throughout the year. Uh, to teach the beliefs of the faith to people who couldn't necessarily read, but what you did is you taught through pictures, through ritual, through all sorts of means. And we, we still do that today. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, it was about focusing on what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, Son of God, that he was fully human, fully divine, sent so that we might be saved, who lived, gave us an example, suffered, died, and rose, that that we might know life to the full and ultimately enter the kingdom. Um, it's, it's really rather remarkable how all of this lasted as long as it has. But it's also significant to recognize how much of this has changed over the centuries, and and because we, you know, because we live really relatively such a short time as human beings, we can easily forget all of that because we don't have the history, and it's it's one of the important factors of, of why it's important to have that history, to be able to tell the stories, uh, but not only to tell the stories to be able to to transfer the meaning behind the stories so that we we just don't end up with a beautiful christmas card but we literally end up with an entire theology and um uh, you might say a, a plan of how to live well and how to live holy lives and and how to embrace the lord more and more deeply in our lives um so it's it's a it's a wonderful season and like i said officially ends uh with baptism and so keep those trees up and those decorations up until January 12th, 13th, whatever, the second weekend. In Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed that. Found a lot of good information in there. We're going to leave it there, and we will see you next time.